You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. In this sermon series, we're looking at popular Christmas carols and pointing out how they connect to Scripture and how and our hope throughout this entire sermon series is that as we're more rooted in the, the biblical story of, of Christ's birth, that the songs that we sing ongoingly year after year, that they will be more impactful and meaningful to us as we understand how rooted they are uh, in Scripture. The verses to the song, Silent Night, the first verse reads, Silent Night, Holy Night. And I'm reading instead of singing as a blessing to you, just so you know. Silent Night, Holy Night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. And then the third verse goes, silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I go by Ant. I get the privilege of serving here as a pastor of Midtown Two Notch. If you're a guest with us in the room, if you're a guest that's joining with us and participating with us online, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to continue to move through this sermon series uh, on Advent, and specifically, again, as we look through different uh, Christmas carols. I have a tendency to believe that when you when someone does something over and over and over again, it can lose some of the impact and some of the, you can lose some of the meaning of what's actually going on. And we we desire for us whether we're sitting under the teaching of God's word or singing about things that are in God's word that we are aware of what God's word actually says. And the, the hope is that as we go through this series, that we'll be able to to sing in a way that's more meaningful and impactful as we understand biblically where a lot of these songs come from. Uh, to get into our topic for the day, there's a a friend of mine, uh, I'll call him Sean. It's not his name. I'll call him Sean. Sean and I were having a conversation, and uh, he doesn't live in Columbia. And I was, I was, he was talking to me about uh, a lot of the racial problems between Christians, kind of in his circle, kind of locally where uh, he was between black Christians and white Christians. He was talking about how difficult it was and how problematic it was. He was kind of going on and on and on about the problems. Uh, and then eventually, I told him, I was like, Sean, I, I'm gonna be honest with you. When you talk about this stuff and like I told him, I was like, I had to stop following you on social media. I know some of y'all don't hit that unfollow button a couple of times. I said I had to do it because everything you say is so hopeless. Like it was bringing me down. Like it was discouraging me because I, there is there is no hope in anything that you say about this. And he he agreed. He was like, I, he's like, you know what? That's fair. I, I, now that I think about it, I have been very hopeless about this. So I went on and shared with him a lot of the conversations I've had with black pastors and white pastors in the city and a lot of the fruit that I feel has come from those uh, conversations and like different conferences and things that I've spoken at, uh, about that. And he made a statement that I felt was very profound. And he said, and I should have known God was going to be at work in places I didn't expect him to be. I should have expected my God to be at work, to be doing things, to be bringing about fruit in situations that I didn't think were, that I thought were hopeless, that I didn't think he could possibly be doing anything. Just from knowing him, I should have known that he was doing that. I'm trying to. (laughs) Church family, today my hope 
is that as we look at the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there, feel free to go ahead. My hope is that God will fully persuade and convince us that he does some of his greatest redemptive work in places that we would often be least likely to look for him to be at work, including some of the darkest of places. My hope is that we would be so convinced of this that we would begin to see areas of hopelessness in our lives as prime opportunity for God to do amazing and glorious things. That we would look intently for him to be doing something in the darkest places and in the darkest situations. The song Silent Night is written to draw our attention to the night that Jesus was born. It tells the story of a night where normal things were happening around Bethlehem, where God was bringing about the birth that will give hope to us all. Let's, continue, let's begin reading. I should say Luke chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his home, to his own town. So because there's this registration, or some people call it a census, going on, um, the, and Rome was notorious for this. So, so Rome had this huge empire. They had basically conquered all of the known world. So this huge empire. And they had this huge army with, with, with soldiers that they would set up all throughout their empire, specifically in places where they had already conquered. And so God's people at this time, the Jews, had been conquered by the Roman Empire. And so one of the things that they did to be able to fund that huge army that they had was force very high, very oppressive taxes on the people that they had conquered to be able to fund this huge army, this huge military that they had. And so part of, part of the way that they did that was through the census and through the registration. Everyone go to their hometown. We count people. We know who all is there. We can know how much money uh, to expect and to collect. So continue on verse four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So they had to travel to where Joseph was from. Joseph at the time was living in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. So you had to go back to Bethlehem because you kind of, in your hometown, the place that you was born, that's where you had to go for, for the census so you can be registered and counted and all that. And so obviously Mary is pregnant at the time. She goes into labor while they're there in Bethlehem. And there was no room for them to be in the inn. So they're outside with the animals and that's where Jesus is born. And likely after Mary and Joseph are able to hold uh, their baby boy, as we often do, they swallowed him up. They didn't have a crib, so they ended up putting him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals, oftentimes horses and cattle. See, the people in Bethlehem were just doing their normal thing with the census, probably seeing old friends, people you grew up with because everybody's coming back to their hometown, probably seeing family, catching up with them. So you're trying to see everybody. Also, you got to know the logistics of the census and the registration and all that. So they're considering those things as well. All of this is happening in Bethlehem. And God is bringing about the salvation of the world. The busyness, you know, the, all, the, all the tasks that you have to get done, the to-do the to list, they're likely going through all those things. Families probably traveling together with a lot on their minds. And God is at work bringing us the hope of salvation. And I'm not sure if you caught it or not, but Luke has already given you a clue that this was indeed the promised Savior when he referred to Bethlehem as the city of David. And he made sure to make the point that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. 
Now, why is that important? Well, centuries prior to Jesus being born, David was a king that had brought great protection and great prosperity to God's people. Not only that, he had led God's people to worship him where they had previously been in this this cycle of idolatry that was going on. So God used David in some very, very miraculous ways, but he also makes a promise to David that is very key to what Luke is pointing out at this point. This promise to David, see, uh, to understand the promise, see, at this time, uh, God's manifested presence or, or, or how God would say he dwelt with his people was in a tabernacle or a tent, right? And so David is looking at himself and he's living in the palace, right? He's got this firm, sturdy home and he's looking at the dwelling place of God and it's a tent. And so he decides he wants to make a, a temple. He wants to build his temple, build a house, if you would, for God. And so eventually God comes to to David and basically says two main things to him. And he says, first of all, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. He does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 17. We'll read verse 10 through 13 pretty quickly. It reads, moreover, so this is God talking to David. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So there's a promised king that's going to come whose throne will be established forever by God himself. He says, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he's saying there's a king that's going to come in your lineage afterwards. I'm going to be his father. He's going to be my son, and he will reign forever. His kingdom will never end. So just to understand the language that's being used, the term house in the Bible can refer to the physical structure of a house, or it can refer to like a household or a family or even someone's lineage. So when he says, David, I'm going to build you a house, he's talking about the, the family, the lineage that David is going to have, specifically talking about this descendant of David that will always be on the throne. So when Luke says that Joseph was in the house of David, he's pointing out to us that the king that is going to reign forever is being born out with the animals. He's saying that the most anticipated birth in the history of their people went unnoticed by most. He's saying that God is at work establishing his eternal kingdom that is going to set his people free and make all things right and virtually nobody noticed it. He's revealing to us today through these things that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't always come and doesn't always work and move in ways and spaces that you'd expect him to come and move. He's revealing to us today that God came in a way that we least expect, in a way that if you were looking only at the things that seem grand or large in scale, that you would actually miss the grandest thing that he's doing. He's revealing to us that of all the great signs and wonders that God had done among his people, he was doing his best one yet in a small town, in a village that many people probably didn't even think much of. And this really isn't the only time that God uh, responds in this way or works in this way in, in times and places where people wouldn't expect him to. So in this in this conversation I'm having with Sean, as he's sharing me, when he when he when he made that phrase, man, I felt was so profound and so powerful when he said, I should have known that God was at work in this way. The first story that actually came to my mind from the Bible is the is the story of Ruth. So the story of Ruth has quite a few things in it that I won't have time to get into today. But if you really want to understand the big picture implications of the book of Ruth, you got to understand what happens in the, you got to understand the first couple verses and the last couple verses and how everything else fits into that. Cause that's what he's setting up. Uh, that's what the author of Ruth is setting up uh, in, in the story. So let's look real quickly 
at Ruth chapter one, verse one, because the point I want to make is that God was actually working out his plan of salvation in the story of Ruth in a place that you really wouldn't likely expect. Ruth chapter one, verse one reads, in the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land. Bible study tip, especially, especially, especially if you're reading a narrative, knowing the, 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 the context, the location, the time period, we got to say in all scripture, knowing those things is very important to understanding what's actually going on. There's a famine in the land, and this is during the time of the judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know this is not a spiritual bright spot for God's people. In fact, this is a vicious cycle of idolatry. It went something like this. God's people start worshiping false gods. Turn to false gods, forsaken the true God. He keeps calling them back to him. They ignore him. Some enemies come and overtake them and oppress him. Then after a while, they cry out to God, saying to God, we're going to follow you, we're going to worship you, come save us. God comes in, raises up a judge, saves his people from this enemy that is oppressing them. They rejoice and thank God for about a verse or two. And then after that, they're back to this idolatry again. And it happens over and over and over again throughout the story in, in, in different ways. And really, you get to the end of the book and you don't even really see them turning back to God anymore, it seems, when you get to the end of the book of Judges. But in the first part, it's a cycle that's, that's going on and on and on in the book of Judges. It's this seemingly, I would call it a spiritually hopeless time, it seems like. Because God had called them to so much more. He had called them to be a light to the nations. He had called them to, to be this place that shows off the, the blessing that it is to live under God's reign and rule and to know God and have God dwell with them and worship him. He had called them to be this beacon of light and beacon of hope in the earth. And he had commanded them to live that way. But they're seemingly stuck in this cycle over and over again. That's what the context is of the book of Ruth. And if you're familiar with the story, there's a woman named uh, Naomi, her and her husband, they moved to Moab. So there's a famine in the land, likely in Bethlehem where she's from. So she has to move away. Oh, she moves away uh, with her with her husband. They go in there with her husband and her sons and they go to Moab where likely there was food and they were able to, to grow crops and everything. And so her sons get married. Uh, but then the story gets, gets, gets really sad uh, early, early in the book where uh, Naomi's husband dies and Naomi's two sons die as well. And so Ruth is one of Naomi's daughters-in-law, and she ends up staying with Naomi and going back uh, to Bethlehem, ends up becoming a, a believer and follower of the one true God. And she ends up having a son, and the son is named Obed. And I want to jump down to verse Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, because this is actually the key to the big picture of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. This is talking about Ruth's son saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Why do I share this story with you today? Because during the time of the judges, in this seemingly spiritually hopeless time where there seems to be no progress, where there seems to be no chance that they're going to be the people that God had called them to be. God is working in the outskirts. God is working in the margins. God is working in Moab, not even in the promised land, to bring about the king that is going to lead them out of this cycle of idolatry and lead them to worship him, to lead them into prosperity. They were in the middle of a famine. This is horrible for an agricultural society like theirs. He's bringing in the king that's going to lead them to prosperity physically, materially, and spiritually. And, and on top of all of that, he's shaping the line and the lineage that he's going to use to bring Jesus in to free all who would trust in him from the slavery to sin in this world, in the margins, 
on the outskirts, not only where you would least likely to expect it, but probably when you were least likely to expect it, because the book of Judges is one of the most depressing books in the Bible. It's one of those books that in the Bible, there's no resolution. At the end of the book, there's no resolution, but the next book of the Bible is Ruth. And God is showing that he was at work the whole time. Where you might be least likely to expect him to be, he was at work the whole time. When you might be distracted by all of the injustice, all the pain, all the hurt, all the sorrow, everything that, that causes anxiety and, and sadness to, to rise up in us, God is saying, I was at work the whole time. Those who were leading, those who were ruling, they weren't following God. They weren't listening to him. But Ruth had become a follower of God. God was working and he was going to bring who many would call the greatest king in the, in the Old Testament, in the history of God's people. He was at work. Where are the areas of your life that you don't expect God to be working? Where are the areas where it seems so dark that you've grown hopeless? I'm talking about the areas that you don't even pray about anymore because you just don't see God doing anything good in this situation. I'm talking about the areas in your life where you just throw your hands up and you, maybe you think about praying, but you're like, what's the point? I've already prayed about this. God hasn't done anything. I don't expect him to do anymore. What are those areas in your life? I asked my son, Colby, if he was okay with telling the story, with me telling the story to y'all. He said he was cool with it. So my son, Colby, he tends to have severely negative thoughts about himself. Very self-condemning thoughts, particularly when he does something wrong or, or hurtful to someone that he really cares about. I mean, I mean, haunting. I mean, to the point where, uh, and, and thankfully, praise God, this hasn't happened in, in several months now. So hopefully we're, we're, we're ahead of this and out of this. But to the point where he would like physically hit himself, like physically punch himself, like on the, on the head, sometimes near the face, like on, the, on, on different parts of his body. Because he was saying, I need to punish myself because what I've done is so bad. And he would rehearse these self-condemning thoughts to himself over and over and over again. And so it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. So I talked to my wife about it and, you know, she was willing to watch the other kids. I went upstairs with Kobe and we had to talk. And I mean, just physically, I mean, you could just see, you, you've seen someone who's so down that, that their, their countenance, their, their body language is one of just real intense sadness and just being so downcast. And so I started talking about, hey, what, what, what leads you to, to do this? He was saying things like, I hate myself, I hate myself over and over again, seven years old at a time. And I'm asking, what's leading you to do this? He was like, I, I, just, I deserve this. I deserve to feel pain for the pain that I've caused other people. This is what I, 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 I'm doing this because this is what I, I should be doing to myself. And, you know, he's in tears as he's talking. I'm in tears as he's talking. And once I realize this, what this, what's at the root of all this is these self-condemning thoughts. And he's a professing follower of Jesus has been baptized. And so I took him to one of, one of the scriptures that really stands out to, to me and really helps me find peace of mind in times of self-condemnation is Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. That says, this is God talking to his people. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. He said, let's talk about this. Let's just have a back and forth about this. Though your sons are like scarlet, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Long story short, I asked him, do you see yourself this way? Do you believe this to be true 
about yourself as a follower of Jesus? And he said, no. I, I, I said, because it talks about us being stained with, with sin like scarlet. Do you see yourself as being white or do you see yourself with, with red stains of sin? He said, I, feel my, I see myself being stained with sin. And so I went uh, into my phone and I did a search for a picture. And we have a picture I want to show you. And this is a picture I put up on my phone and shared with him. And we can have it on the, on the screen here. And I said, this is how God sees you. I said, this is what's true of anyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, that we are as white as snow, no matter how you feel. And at this point, we're both in tears, and he just runs up to and he just, I mean, I was right beside him. He just comes to me and gives me a big bear hug and, and just thanks me for sharing this with him. And then the next day, one of the things my, uh, my wife has done uh, a lot throughout our, our family at the dinner table is just ask the question, hey, what, what are we thankful for? And let's, let's just give a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And I could see Kobe trying to think about what he was grateful for. So um, I brought up my phone, I pulled up a picture, and, I, and I, I showed it to him. And then when it was his turn to pray, he said, God, thank you so much for making me white as snow, because that really lifts my spirits. And, and, and many of y'all know Kobe, like, uh, I feel like God's just uh, gifted him, really, and his brother as well, like, being able to grasp and even articulate the gospel at a very, very young age, that was the first time that I saw it change his countenance. That was the first time that I saw comfort based on the word of God, based on the good news of Jesus, affect him so much that as to use his words, that it lifted up his spirits. He could always state it. He could always, I mean, for, for years before that, he could explain many aspects about the gospel. He could have told you that very truth that, he, that, that we find in that verse, but that time it, he, he sensed his need for it. And the reason I bring that up to you today is that God used the, from, at least from my knowledge, the darkest time in his life. He used the darkest time when, he, when a seven-year-old is punching himself saying, I hate myself over and over and over again. And God uses that to help him understand not only his need for God, but the joy and peace that we can have in God. Why? Because God uses the dark situations. Oftentimes, God uses the times where we wouldn't be looking at him. We wouldn't be looking for him. We wouldn't be expecting him to do anything. And that's where oftentimes he is at work in such beautiful ways. Light always shines brightest in the darkness. And I am convinced that I am here today on assignment from God to remind us that God is often active and working in the places where we least expect, where you least expect him to be at work. It makes me wonder. I wonder if God is at work in the hearts of your coworkers, making their hearts fertile ground for the word of God to be sown into. But we miss it because all we're thinking about is how do I get stuff done so I can get out of there? I wonder if God is at work at our jobs in places where we least expect. I wonder if God is calling you to not, giving up, to not give up on praying for that family member. The one that seems so far from God that there's no way they'll repent. There's no way they'll turn from sin. I wonder if God is calling you to not lose heart in prayer and continuing to pray constantly for them. I wonder if you have the type of faith in God that asks, even in the most difficult times of suffering, God, how do you want to grow me in this? I wonder if you have the faith to ask, God, what do you want to teach me? How might I leverage this difficult and painful situation to know you more, to trust you more, to find more joy in you and not in the things of this world? I wonder if we trust that God is at work, even in places that we often would least expect him to be. 
I think it was back in July. I asked Kelly if I could share this story. She said yes. I think it was back in July. I was um, visiting Kelly. Uh, she was in the hospital at that time. They were uh, really trying to figure out what was going on with her. Obviously, there were some painful and difficult and severe symptoms that she was experiencing. And I remember going in thinking, I, I want to be a support. I want to pray for her. I want to be an encouragement to her at this time. So I go in and I asked, you know, how are you holding up in here? I know this is incredibly difficult situations. And, and I think one of the first things that she said to me was, and God has really been showing me how much he loves me in here. And I'm thrown off. I'm like, I'm the one supposed to be doing that. You don't know how this works. I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for a few years. Here's how this works. You tell me how difficult it is. I encourage you with God's word. She starts telling me I've been able to spend more time in the word. I've just been listening to worship music over and over and over again. God has been giving me joy in him. He's comforting me with his presence even here. She was going in so hard, encouraging me. I could see her laboring to breathe as she was proclaiming the excellencies of God to me. After painful tests, after painful tests, seeing, experiencing weakness in her body. Ultimately, there was a, it's been a diagnosis of cancer since then. And one thing that's been true for me, and I think for many of us in this room, is that since that day, there's not, been, there's not a single person on the planet that has encouraged my faith more than Kelly has. The, the, I've seen people in, in difficult and painful times question God, leave the faith, want nothing to do with God in difficult times. And I remember, and especially, and this was probably back closer to July, I remember when, when, when Kelly would come into this room with the oxygen tank and still be wanting to stand up and worship and praise God and use the strength that she has to praise God. I thought, what a blessing to our church family to be able to see what it's like to truly suffer and truly trust in God, to truly experience the darkness but still cling to the light. To truly, and, and, and here's the crazy, here's one of the craziest things for me, going back to July and even to now, in the time when I thought I was supposed to be doing the encouraging, God was like, I'm going to encourage, I'm going to use some of the most difficult situations. I'm going to use, I'm going to use pain, I'm going to use something as awful as cancer to really, and I hope we all, especially us who are members at Midtown Tunaj know this, that we have been, been blessed to be able to witness God sustain Kelly's joy and hope and faith in him. And she has been an extreme blessing. I mean, every Sunday, every Sunday, standing up, praising God, using the strength that God has given her. Kelly, I hope we've been close to as much of an encouragement to you as you've been to us. And I hope every one of our members understands truly how much of a blessing it is for us to have you as a sister in our church. And it's just a reminder to us that the light shines brightest in the darkness. It's just a reminder to us that God is at work even in places we might not expect him to. How? I'm thinking about myself as a pastor. I'm going to the hospital. I'm not expecting to be encouraged. I'm not expecting God to be speaking a word to me at this time in this dark of a situation. Oh, that we might have the faith to ask God in all dark and difficult situations. How might you be speaking to me? How might you be at work 
in me through this situation. My prayer is that God will give us all the faith that we need to, to look at his work and look at his power and remember how faithful he has been to us, even in the most difficult of times. That he will give us the, the, the faith to find hope in the fact that he works all things together for the good of those who are loved him and called according to his purpose, no matter how dark the times get. My prayer is that God would help us to be convinced that he does work even in the darkest of times. In this Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, wasn't just a story of God bringing in salvation and hope in a place where most wouldn't look. It's also a story of him bringing salvation and hope in the middle of great sin and great injustice. Remember, part of the reason that Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem in the first place was because of the census. And a large part of the reason for the census was so that Rome could enforce these oppressive taxes on all those who they have conquered, including the people of God. So God is actually using sin at a systemic level to get Joseph and Mary back to the place where they were supposed to be because Jesus was promised to be born in Bethlehem. It's not just that he's at work in and around times of darkness and in the times when we want to expect him. He actually uses the darkness for his purposes. What a reason we have to not be hopeless in times of darkness. We serve a God who uses the enemy's greatest weapons against him. That he would use the sin, that he would use the injustice to bring about his purposes to free us all from slavery to sin. So on this night that we sing about when we sing Silent Night, not only was God bringing healing and hope and salvation into the world, but he was doing it in a time of great sin and brokenness of suffering. He was bringing righteousness out of unrighteousness. He was bringing light out of darkness. He was using the sin in the world to bring about the birth of the one that would rid this world of sin. This is what he does. This is what God does at the birth of Jesus, and this is what God does at the death of Jesus as well. And I want to encourage us, if there's any area in your life that you feel hopeless about, to take hope in the fact that God is often at work in those places that will cause us to feel hopeless. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 through 8. Talking about Jesus, a prophecy years before Jesus came. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. But by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He suffered under sin to rid this world of sin. He suffered injustice to rid this world of injustice. He suffered oppression to rid this world of oppression. He suffered under hate to rid this world of of hate. God suffered death to rid this world of death. God is consistently taking the enemy's weapons and using them to defeat him. And I want us to remember this, and I want you to remind every cynical and every hopeless and every discouraged thought that you have that God is at work in the midst of the things that cause us to be hopeless. This is prime opportunity for him to be at work in our lives, in our world. I want to encourage you to think about something in this world that discourages you. Think about something in your life that discourages you. Don't give up praying. Don't give up trusting God. Don't give up remembering God's presence and his promises and his goodness. Don't give up. God is at work. He loves to be at work in and through the darkness, the sin, the injustice, the the pain and the suffering. And my hope is that when when we see, when we think of Jesus in that manger, that we remember that. That we remember this God was at work. No one expected him to be at work here. And my hope is that we will place such faith and confidence in God that we'll begin to echo 
what my, my friend Sean said in that conversation years ago. I should have known that God was at work. I should have known that God would be teaching me to rely on him and depend on him in my time of sickness. I should have known that when my coworker was opening up to me about some of the problems in their life, that God was opening the door for me to share with them the hope that I have and the rock that I cling to in times of difficulty and suffering in my life. I should have known that the pain of losing a loved one, I should have known that the difficulty of processing through my hurt and my grief, I should have known the times of financial hardship. I should have known that in the fear and the uncertainty of a hospital visit, that God was up to something working in ways that I wouldn't have expected him. I believe oftentimes us growing in faith in God in this area, in this area, is just for us echoing out loud. I should have known God was doing this. I should have known. So let's look for him there. Let's let this holy night in Bethlehem speak to us in our hopelessness. Let's let it remind us that no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful things get, our God loves to work in places where oftentimes we would least expect. Family, will you pray with me?